0: Welcome to the Theology Podcast. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor, and I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, specifically in Vancouver, Washington, which is right across the river from Portland, Oregon. So we're actually in that metro area. And we keep all the weird stuff on the other side of the river, so it's not a problem. But anyway, um, I have written some books. The most recent book is In the House of Tom Bombadil. Tom, why don't you tell us about yourself? I'm on the flip side of the country. I'm in the Northeast. <laughs> I teach uh,
1: theology, ethics, and philosophy. One of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological
2: Seminary. Now we're going to the Midwest and Gled Sunshine. Yeah, you know, if you really look at the map, I, I kind of wonder why they don't call this part of the country the Mid East. But um, <laughs> it, it is the Midwest. I'm in uh, Indiana. Um, Glenn Sunshine, Senior Fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, uh, Ministry Associate with Reflections Ministries, and retired and recovering history professor.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, before we jump into the topic of the day, and it's your day, Glenn, I want to just let folks know that we have a new Patreon page and it's a lot of fun. But one of the things about the Patreon page is that if you uh, are you know, on the page when we're recording a show, you can actually listen into a live recording of the show. You can get all of our snide comments to each other before and after, and uh, actually uh, even type in questions or comments uh, in the chat box. So check it out. Uh, The link is in the show notes. Anyway, Glenn, why don't you go ahead and take us uh, where we're going today?
2: Okay. um, This is inspired by a the first three parts of what will end up being a four-part series of articles by a guy named Jesse Hake, entitled "Why Everyone Should Believe in Fairies." Um, and uh,
0: by the way, this is a this is actually a thing. that's a thing. I mean, it's growing. This is, this is like this, a movement.
2: This is very serious. And he's writing this as a believer, as a Christian. Um, yeah. He is. Uh, he cites church fathers, all kinds of things like that. For belief in this. Now, we need to understand what he means by this, and we may go through some of the details of the, uh, the argument later on, but I think I would summarize some of the key points as, well, first of all, we have, since uh, he, he dates it really to the 17th century, I think that's about right, somewhere in the 17th century or later with the advent of the Enlightenment, we've taken a much more stripped-down view of reality than anybody did prior to that. Uh, We've sort of reduced everything in the physical world to the things that we uh, we can measure, that we can verify scientifically, all of those kinds of things. And this has even had a major influence on Christians in that we accept God we may accept angels, although for most of us, they have no functional place in our theology. Uh, we may accept demons, although that may be a stretch for a lot of people. Uh, but that's about it. And the argument here, as we're, we're discussing fairies, is that we should really take seriously the idea that there are other kinds of, let's call them spirits, that inhabit the natural world that do not really correspond to our normal categories of angels and demons. Okay, And this was, in fact, a universal belief among even the highly educated in Europe into the 17th century, and it continues to be a belief of people around the world, except for cultures that are influenced by the Enlightenment. And in fact, you will find people who will give you firsthand accounts of encountering these kinds of beings. Now, we write those off. The question is, should we? And he of course, we shouldn't. Yeah,
0: Chris. Now, I noticed today that a fairy has taken your beard and braided it for the uh, <laughs> uh, folks yeah. who... Uh,
2: well, that was actually not a fairy. That was my wife. So, <laughs> so, but, um, yeah, um, I've actually considered getting a, a uh, pointed hat and uh, uh, trying to hire out as a garden gnome. Um, but but that that's a whole different issue. Um OK, so um, this argument about fairies, like I said, when we use the word fairy, it it generates all kinds of weird images, um, largely inspired by Disney these days. But as C.S. Lewis will tell you, if you read the discarded image, that's not really the concept. That's not what people really meant by the term. Disney really bolderized it which is one of the reasons why Tolkien and Lewis, both uh, despised, isn't too strong a word, Disney. Yeah, yeah. So if you take a look at scripture, just look at this from a couple of different directions, and then maybe we'll get into some of his direct arguments. If you look at scripture, scripture seems to indicate that nature is... um, Well, it's a lot more alive than we give it credit for. We have rivers clapping their hands. We have mountains shouting for joy when the Lord comes. Now, we can dismiss that as poetry, maybe, but maybe that's not exactly the best thing to do. Um, Consider trees, for example. What we know now about trees is that trees actually communicate with each other. Um, And they do this via chemical signals that are picked up in the roots. So if a tree is, for example, attacked by bugs um, and the tree is in danger, it sends signals out through its roots that other trees detect and they start putting chemicals into the soil that that tree can use to fight the insects. Now, by any standard that I know, this is a form of communication. So the trees are actually talking to each other. They don't sound like the horns or the ants, but they do talk to each other. They help each other. They communicate. Is it far-fetched to say that there is a way that the trees of the fields will clap their hands when Christ returns. Yeah.
0: I think that, you know, a couple of things. One is you you made a a statement about poetry a moment ago that I think is worth thinking about uh, because it does relate to this. So um, the poetic can be understood in a couple of ways, or at least a couple of ways. One of those ways is that this is just a fanciful way for us to sort of pretty up things kind of you know so in other words what what the language of poetry is referring to is, is exists in our heads and in our imaginations but doesn't actually correspond to the world outside the head an older understanding of poetry was kind of more in keeping with what you're getting at which is the the language actually is saying something that's a, a, you know about the reality out there and the only reason why the language exists in our heads is there is a reality out there which which informs uh, our language. And I think that is what the, you know, people prior to the Enlightenment would have all had as their sort of starting point.
1: Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, real quick, on that note, I, I think the same thing is, is you'll see in theology itself. Prior to the 17th century, maybe a little bit before that— um, you you had a much richer sense of, of the way language worked. Even our notion of literal is not the way it we mean it today. That's a byproduct of scientism and and um, the you know the, the enlightenment. And so what you have oftentimes in church history is that the language is such that we really depreciate it when we make it literal in the way in which the the modern understands it. And so the poetic, the liturgical, the metaphorical, these actually have a connection to reality in the classic view that is more akin to what what we mean by literal now, even though we replace a flatter view of language and make that the literal. And I don't, I don't know, but this is, this is, I think, gets into the way in which the imaginative, the poetic, and their connection to reality is much more, quote-unquote, literal um, than what the 17th century um, is doing. And, I mean, I think, I think you could think of it this way. I mean, for example, we would say, if I heard the, the water on in the kitchen, I would say, um, you know, the water is running. Mm-hmm. The water is, you know, it isn't literally running, not the way in which the, the metaphors work. It doesn't have legs in which it is going. It, it is moving, right? But nobody would say I wasn't communicating something real about it, even though I use a statement like that, you know, and, and that's just a kind of a small way of putting it. But I think it's a way in which metaphor and analogy and language get a little little fuzzy when we kind of reduce them to
2: a hyper-literal interpretation, So anyway, I just. Yeah, Yeah, and I I would continue with with the the psalm I was citing that, you know, when are the trees going to clap their hands? When the Lord comes to judge the earth. Now think about Romans 8, where we're told that the creation is subject to futility, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, which occurs when Christ comes to judge the earth. So, so the creation is subject to futility, meaning it cannot achieve its proper ends. Its its telos is, is unachievable. And it is waiting. It is It knows it's subject to futility and it's waiting until the Lord comes to judge the earth. At which point, the Psalms tell us that creation is going to celebrate. What all of this points to is the idea that maybe we should be thinking about the natural world and the creation as being more alive and more purposive than we normally think of it.
0: Yeah, I think, I think a lot of uh, people can go that far, Glenn, but I wonder if they can go the next step which I yeah. think is what we're going to take. <laughs> right.
2: Well, well, it's what we're going to suggest. I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> <we're>
0: gonna...
2: <laughs> um, I found the article rather intriguing because in a lot of ways it starts at that sort of level, but only very briefly. Um, you know, it, it goes off very quickly into saying people around the world have always believed that there are some form of spirits connected to the natural world. The animists turn this into the absolute, okay? You don't have to be an animist, however, to think that, well, maybe, yeah, some of these things do exist. And there are people today who believe in it. By the way, Lewis and Tolkien, Lewis definitely and Tolkien almost certainly also believed that these kinds of entities are around. Okay. Now, the the question is, well, there are a lot of questions that this raises, but let me give you a single example of you know someone I know personally. Um, my son-in-law is from Sierra Leone, and he tells me, that there are spirits, now he's a believer, he's a Christian, he's a pastor. He tells me that there are spirits that occupy the waters around Sierra Leone. Um, He actually usually refers to them as demons, but it doesn't, I don't think it means demon in the sense that we do. So for example, in many rivers, Um, apparently the spirit knows the people in the area and it's safe for them to swim in it. If an outsider comes in, the spirit will drown them. Hmm. There's an island that he says assesses people's motives when they come. And if they're coming duplicitously, if they've got uh, hidden agendas and all of that kind of thing that they're working toward, they'll be drowned. You know, so this is his firm belief living there. They also don't like the ocean. The ocean is really dangerous as far (laughs) as they're concerned because they see it. Now, is this superstition? We write it off. But is that necessarily what we should do, considering that there are people all over the world who have similar kinds of stories? Do we just dismiss those a priori?
0: Yeah, I think the challenge for many Christians is how does this fit into a larger sort of framework? So, where do these spirits come from? Are they are they human in origin? Are they uh, angelic in origin? Is there a kind of creature that God has made that we just don't know about um, that? we see at work here? You know How does this all kind of fit? And I'm, I'm sure you're going to go into some of that a
2: little bit. But yeah, Lewis actually talks about this in the discarded image. He says right. in the medieval world, there were three different ways of viewing these. Um, one of them is that they were angels who, he doesn't put it this way, but who tried to be neutral in the the battle between God and Satan. Um, a second way is that they are actually spirits of the dead. Um, and there's a third one that I don't remember off the top of my head. I can try to track it down. Um, but I think that, th- that there's another way of viewing it and that they are just simply a kind of creature that exists in the world Possibly, I'm not committing on this, but it would also be possible to think of them as a kind of creature that exists within the world that simply doesn't enter the biblical story. So God never told us about them. So,
0: with that in mind, um, they they also uh, the question is: Is how are they related to God in the in the sense of are they on the good side, the bad side? This kind of gets us back to this idea of maybe uh, an attempt uh, to be neutral. You know, maybe there are people, there there are creatures for whom you know, it just depends on what day you're dealing with them. Uh, they're going to be either good or bad to
2: you. That yeah. kind of thing. And you actually run into stories exactly like that. You know, where sometimes yeah. they they're capricious. You don't really know where they're going to land. Yeah, Tom.
1: Uh, yeah, one of the things you you think about just from you start kind of. Biblical reasoning. I mean, when you're dealing with an animated, actualized creation, it's it's a it's a very uh, creature, you know, human centric view to think the human being is the only one in all of that whose actualization has any kind of gift attached to it that is communicative and interrelational. I mean, if you think, for example, you know, I have cats here; they communicate with me. You know, we don't talk like <laughs> I'm not crazy, <laughs> okay. um, but we do we do communicate. They communicate with each other and there are whole different levels of of kind of conscious relationship going on. Um, and so we tend to just think of that as they're animals of a complete um, different sort of almost almost like a raw material that that is there for us if we for our taking. Or it's just part of the setting in which we carry out our redemptive history and our dominion um, but we don't realize that we're part of a wider surplus of each creature that is made specifically from the loving will of the creator and that has a relation to the creator and a relation to us so it is already animated um, in a way of aliveness that um, you don't have to go far from from the scripture to to recognize, and then bring the fall into that. Okay, so what is the first thing Satan is doing in the garden that we always try to write off as symbol? Well, he's communicating through the serpent, <laughs> right? Um, so it's a way of getting hold of that creature's um, actualization and making it an instrument of evil plans. And so you bring this into the whole of creation, and you have creaturely that can be caught up in that tug of war and groaning of fallenness that can be evil as well as purposeful and for our good yeah this uh
0: this line of inquiry or this way of thinking or this category that we're discussing runs parallel to uh you know aliens and other worlds in the sense that are they out there and if they are out there how do they fit into the created order and how should we think about it or think about them now obviously at this point this is just a mental exercise this is a what if but there are some people who would say well this would be like the the proof that that the biblical account uh is false if we were to find life on another planet or intelligent (laughs) life that would be uh proof that the bible was inaccurate or um you've got another approach. No, I agree. No, it it wouldn't be. (laughs) And that's and that's what Lewis tried to like play out with his you know space Mm -hmm. trilogy is the is the idea. But um but I I, I wrote something years ago about C.S. Lewis and H. P. Lovecraft for Touchstone magazine, and I noted in my introduction to the subject that um people sometimes um Materialists, uh, scientists people who i mean people who are advocates of scientism i don't mean scientists in the sense that we that, you know a legitimate line of inquiry is a scientific inquiry but sci- scientism people who are advocates of scientism they they do take this approach that um you know we uh as Christians have advocated a kind of man at the center of the universe kind of way of thinking. And if we ever found some other source of life in the universe that was intelligent, that it would completely upset our entire worldview and that kind of thing. Well, maybe that's true for a particular set of Christians, but, uh, Christians in the past have wrestled with, with the, with the prospect or affirmed the prospect that everywhere that a creature could live, there is a creature. Um, and, and so consequently, uh, Christians in, you know, the medieval world thought of intelligences in, you know, the various levels of the cosmos that they were there. And we right. weren't the only intelligent. Christians. And they weren't sp- thinking specifically, although in some cases they were, but they weren't necessarily thinking that these were angelic in the sense that we see in Scripture, mm. but they could be other kinds of intelligences.
2: Yeah. Now, d- two things on that. By the way, I found Lewis. There were four things that Lewis said. They could either be a third rational species distinct from men and angels. That's what I argued a minute ago. A special class of angel, some special class of the dead, or fallen angels. In other words, devils, demons. Okay. Right. So those were the four ways that these were viewed in the medieval world. Um, the The... The interesting thing is that the idea that the Earth is the center of the universe doesn't mean the same thing to a medieval that it does to us. Um, to us, it means we're the most important thing out there; everything revolves around us. To the medieval, it meant we were the thing farthest from God. Yeah, that's, you know, that's it's, a it's huge. It's, a, it's an important distinction that we usually don't aren't aware of. Don't, aren't you know? It, it doesn't mean we're important. It actually shows how the only reason we are important is divine grace. Yeah, I've, I've often used the term the drain of
0: the cosmos, the idea yeah. that we're actually at the bottom of the cosmos, and this is where everything heavy goes. So we're actually at this really low point. Uh, the center is like the center of a, a, a swirling um, you know, uh,
2: pool of water in which the heavy deposits get to the bottom, and that's where we right. are. Yeah, and that's basically Aristotle. Now, in in terms of where these things fit in the medieval mind, everything has, as you pointed out, everything has its proper inhabitant. So the stars are in the sphere of uh, of fire. Uh, They have a fiery essence and fiery beings are are attached to those. Um, Land has animals And birds, because birds nest in trees and things like that. Water has fishes. What is the natural inhabitant of the air? It turns out, to the medieval, it's these kinds of spirits. Um, And in fact, Shakespeare in The Tempest talks about Ariel as an airy spirit. That's what he's referring to. You know so that again, that would be the the slot that they would fit into in terms of the way the medievals organized the world well there's a, there's something that sometimes people dismiss as poetic
0: in uh, Ephesians when we're told that the prince of the power of the air is our adversary. Most modern people have no sense of what that could mean, right. But I, I think it actually ties into what we're talking about here.
2: Right. Yeah. The um, the way they conceived of the world is um, the, the Earth is the densest element sinks to the center and naturally forms up as a sphere. Water as the next densest element forms up around Earth, followed by air. And then at the level of the moon, it breaks and moves into the sphere of fire. So... Airy spirits or or the prince of the power of the air is everything that that exists between earth and water and the moon so the prince of the power of the air is the prince that governs the things in this world is what it comes down to and um, Jesus refers to Satan as the uh, uh I, I think he even uses the word God of this world yeah. you know thats this prince of the power of the air that we're looking at here Yep. And this gets in this gets into
1: in scripture why we talk that we were talking what we talked about uh last week, why being heavenly minded and sit sit sitting in high places with Christ on his throne is so significant to the you know the 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 hierarchy and, and the ordering of uh, spiritual and created realities. Um, in ways that I don't think we have an antenna for. This is why we tend to naturalize the kingdom only about sort of just kind of, you know, quoting our verse really hard and kind of fitting a form of life,
0: you know, closely to it. Um, Or we think about principalities and powers exclusively in terms of human political institutions.
1: Yes. Well, that's that's interesting. Uh I was going to... quick note on that is, uh, I don't know if you know Stephen R.L. Clark's work. Um, he's he's kind of, a, he, he's a Plotinian scholar, and I would say he's he's what you would call almost the Christian Neoplatonist, um, but he just put a book out called Cities and Thrones and Powers Towards a Plotinian Politics, but his whole argument is this one here, and he's, he's kind of retrieving Plotinus, who, if you know the history of Neoplatonism, it was Plotinus was at the same schools of thought that the early Christians were at, and they were actually uh, debating each other. And Christianity had much, as much input into the Plotinian system um, and Neoplatonism as it was influenced by it. But anyway, that's a whole different story. But one of the things he's trying to retrieve is this very point. Is that even though I wouldn't go where he goes, Stephen Clark kind of gets into the whole notion of uh, world soul to, to f- describe God's immanence. Um, but he is trying to get back to this this uh, spiritual conscious dimension of all things creaturely, and that there are these hierarchies and thrones and this this aliveness to the whole of creation. So he's using that language to get back a hold of it. But like as Glenn said, there's a, there's a very rich medieval language it's already there um, that that uh, you don't have to go down this path even if you can appreciate what he's trying to do
2: yeah and um, but he cites uh, Clark he also cites David Bentley Hart is moving in this direction and, yeah. and several others um, yeah. th- what's interesting is is he cites a number of church fathers and a, a guy from a bit later that you may have heard of by the name of John Calvin um, that that sort of point in this the same general direction. So, origin, for example, let me see if I can find it quickly. Uh, origin, I think that was in part two. Um, origin talked about um, angelic. Yeah. Um, well, quote a couple of quotes. We indeed also maintain with regard not only to the fruits of the earth, but to every flowing stream and every breath of air that the ground brings forth, that those things which are said to grow up naturally, that the water springs in fountains and refreshes the earth with running streams, that the air is kept pure and supports the life of those who breathe it, only in consequence of the agency and control of certain beings whom we may call invisible husbandmen and guardians, But we deny that those invisible agents are demons. So he believed, or Origen argued, that anything that showed life, uh, including uh, springs, uh, air that that moves, all of these kinds of things, are uh, under the control of what he calls invisible husbandmen. There are spirits behind these things. Um later he says, and if we may speak boldly, we would say that if demons have any share in all of these things, to them belong famine, blessing of the vine and fruit trees, pestilence among men and beasts. All these are the proper occupation of demons. Hmm. So what we see here is, on the one hand, the positive things that are produced by nature are produced by, call them benevolent, uh, invisible husbandmen. The negative things are produced by demons, the, the malevolent, uh, invisible husbandmen. Um, now, Athanasius is going to disagree with this. But when you look at St. Jerome, when he's talking about the life of St. Antony, he talks about Antony encountering centaurs, which he says, well, we're not really sure what these are. But he does talk about him also encountering a satyr who has come to faith in Christ. And that (laughs) he affirms is absolute truth. (laughs) So we have that kind of stuff coming in. And uh, the quote from Calvin, let me see if I can find it quickly. Uh, Yeah, it's going to take me a little while to, to track that one down. But there's a quote from Calvin that goes roughly in the same direction where he talks about almost angelic presences being involved in the working of nature. Hmm. So again, this just points to the fact that there's a long Christian tradition that believed in these kinds of beings that we don't normally encounter or see or anything else. But that doesn't mean they're not there. Yeah, I think the connection
0: to... You know, the angelic is something that um, Christians can take, uh, I guess, some uh, comfort in when we think about these things. But maybe uh, wrongly, uh, I, I guess this is what I mean. I think that we we still are kind of like living in the penumbra of the 19th century sort of a cherub, uh, you know, uh, kind of understanding of the angelic and not really dealing with the material that we have in scripture, which reveals to us uh, creatures that are a lot scarier than your typical, you know, Victorian painting, you know, uh, reveals.
2: Yeah, someone once commented, I forgot who it was. He said that, I think it was Lewis, actually. He said that um, whenever an angel appears in scripture, its first words are fear not. The Victorian angels look like they're going to say they're there. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. But if that's the case, then if 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 biblical accounts of angels are
0: really kind of unnerving and and weird, you know, creatures with eyes all over the place and uh, different kinds of heads and just, all, you know, wings, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If, layers if, that, of wings. <laughs> yeah if that's the case, then we, we ought to be maybe uh, less, I guess, uh, dismissive of the workings of the angelic in ways that we don't fully understand and that maybe uh, the angelic are at work in this work of hu- husbanding the the world getting back to sort of our comments concerning the reform tradition's dismissal of something biblical at a practical yeah. level. So right. getting to my yeah. point is that we all say that angels exist, but we don't have anything from them to do. Here, right. here we have some somebody is saying, you know, they do have some things to do. <laughs> yeah,
2: I actually found the quote from Calvin. Okay, All great. creatures are animated by angelic motion. Not yeah. that there is a conversation, a conversion, excuse me, of the angel into an ox or a man, but because God exerts and diffuses his energy in a secret manner so that no creature is content with his own particular vigor, vigor but is animated by angels themselves. That's hmm. Calvin. It's an in- instrument,
0: yeah. But he's he's saying there that the power of God is being uh, distributed through the angels. To the creatures is, in this world. Yeah, which is something that many Reformed would not... Uh, ascend to or sent to they many reform would like to have god just sort of work mechanically through a f- kind of almost um sort of uh, process without any volition where just sort of forces are at work
2: yeah by, f- by, by sheer sure divine di- divine decree something happens without any intermediate being and yet when you read daniel we find that God sent an angel to Daniel to answer his prayer right away. That angel was opposed by, well, a demon, for lack of a better word. A demon who is associated with a territory. Right. Um, so we got territorial spirits, it seems, there. Um, and it took a couple of weeks until the guy got reinforcements, until the angel got reinforcements from Michael. Um right. Only then could he get through. So it seems that God answers prayer at least sometimes by sending an angel to answer it. And I think you you find that
1: that especially in that kind of apocalyptic part of Scripture. I mean, look at the Book of Revelation as well. Here you're, you're talking spiritual battles. You're talking um, almost a vision into the different layers of, of creatures that are there. You have the, you know, this language is of beasts and of angels, and we tend to just use it as just these symbols for something we can describe again on, in a kind of literal, natural way. Um, when we actually may be dealing with levels of reality that really are best expressed that way, because that, that reducing them down to a naturalistic, mechanical picture um, is fundamentally at odds with it.
2: Yeah, I was just talking to my pastor today about, about Revelation, and one of the things that he said, I, I think he got this from his theology professor at Westminster, a nine-year-old boy probably understands Revelation better than most biblical scholars because a nine-year-old boy reads comic books. <laughs> <laughs> and Revelation is fundamentally pictures, it's not puzzles.
0: Well, and two, I remember as a young Christian, a, a teenage boy, uh, I was always captivated by the supernatural. And, you know, my, my mind was uh, always uh, sort of moving in the direction toward the book of Revelation, or maybe, you know, some power encounter in which Jesus is casting out demons in the Gospels, that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, now, this brings us to, I think, an objection that, that many folks would have to not just the angelic and the demonic, but to obviously um, fairies. uh, And that is, well, why haven't I encountered these things?
2: I mean, it seems as though... Good question. (laughs) And in fact, the articles, the, the set of articles actually addresses that. And it addresses it, I think, in a really intriguing way. What he says is that people who have the second sight, the people who are able to see these things are typically people who have lived on the land for generations. Hmm. And if these spirits are, if they do exist, let's assume they do for the moment, if they are attached to the land, what happens to people whose great-great-grandparents were growing food on that land and their grand, great-grandparents were and their grandparents were and their parents were and they were? Well, the land produces the grain The grain produces the bread, the bread produces the person. So these are people, and he says this is actually consistent across the board, that it's people who have lived multiple generations on the land are the ones who most often see these creatures because in a very real way, the land has become them. And there is therefore a connection between them and the land that is much, much deeper that enables them to encounter these things in a way that those of us who are, well, I come from many generations of urban dwellers and we've been moving around a lot. We don't have roots so someone yeah, like me is unlikely to actually encounter something like this, whereas someone who is deeply rooted in the land is more likely to have the experience of, of um, being able to recognize them.
0: Yeah, I think uh, that means, of course, that most modern people, uh, you know, I've mm-hmm. moved around a lot in my life, uh, are not able to, to sort of... Uh, acquire or possess that second sight right which which just reinforces a kind of the materialist bias that they possess so keep you know sort of again playing with the idea let's just suppose for the sake of argument that there's something to this um, that would help to explain it another thought I had was um, it's maybe related to this is that even with the Lord um, there was there was a sense in which, uh, the faith of those that he was ministering to informed his, uh, miracles. Now, does that mean that he couldn't do anything without, uh, faith? I think that would take things too far, but it does, uh, mean that he couldn't do something for them, uh, in, in a certain sense, uh, because of their inability to receive it. Their, in, in a, their, their lack of faith does, uh, affect their ability to enjoy the healing that he could bring to them or, or what have you. So there's also something that, so this is where the subjective uh, comes into play in ways in which say this modern scientific approach of thinking, it doesn't know what to do with.
1: In, in a connected connected with with that is also in the in the gospels very similar you have first of all Jesus during his, his as he is led by the spirit to 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 encounter temptation um, what happens well there's fasting going on of course and which is in scripture part of this way of having eyes to see and ears to hear those aspects you know you're you're in connection. Um, with, with god and reality in such a way that you're encountering things you will encounter the subjective you will encounter your flesh but then you will encounter spirits i mean you see this also with desert fathers sometimes it went to extremes but but there is this reduplicating of this this spiritual approach and and then what happens i mean in this time christ is tempted and he's shown the kingdoms of this world in which you know, you know, you're seeing a certain way in which this world, prior to Christ's uh, overcoming, is is in you know is being offered to Christ, right, as a way to to take him off the road, if you will. Um, and and I think very similar when we talk about Christian pilgrimage, it was, it's the same thing. But there is a way of seeing aspects of reality. I'm not talking about you know defining it yet. But I think the way in which we develop a grammar and an antenna for think spiritual reality, um, gets, uh, more focused, um, as we kind of are relating to the fuller picture of reality through our centering in, in God and, uh, and spiritually cultivating those dimensions of our life that will have more of an antenna for that.
2: Yeah. One of the things that I found particularly intriguing as a notion in here, in, in, in the the essays, is the degree to which, the, the question of the degree to which human civilization and human culture influences these unseen realms. Um, and the, the guy argues, um, uh, Mr. Hake, Jesse Hake, argues that it's quite possible that human cultures can, help, can shape these unseen cultures in some significant ways. Which means that, going back to something we, we touched on earlier, which means that some of them can be genuinely benevolent, some of them can be genuinely capricious, and some of them can be genuinely malicious. Because the fall that has affected human cultures and the redemption in Christ that has affected human cultures might also have a carryover effect on the unseen cultures of, I prefer to call them the fae rather than the fairy, but, you know, whatever. Um, It's another sort of intriguing idea that he suggests, which is why he argues that when you look at the European evolution of ideas of these, because of the influence of Christianity on human cultures, he thinks that that also affected the way the invisible cultures were, so that they tended to be much more friendly than they might be in other parts of the world. Interesting. Interesting. So
0: you'd find some kind of carryover of the proclamation of the gospel into
2: Fay. Right. Um, I got, yeah. Like I said, um, Jerome, in his biography of St. Anthony, talks about a satyr who is evangelized by Antony and comes to faith. He says, we've heard some things about this, but we don't know. We need we want more. We, we need to know more about what God has done here. Yeah, yeah. And Antony evangelizes the, the Seder and he goes back to his, his tribe and brings the, the gospel to them.
0: Yeah, that's, and, and on one hand, that's fun. You know, it's fun to think about that as though we are thinking about a story like, you know, something written by George MacDonald or C.S. Lewis or whatever. I was thinking of Fantasties, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on the other yeah. hand, uh, we're talking about Uh, 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 the prospect that there's some kind of reality to this in other words outside of the literary imagination and that's the thing again that's hard for lots of folks to kind of work with
2: and like I said, Jerome took this very seriously You know, he actually argued that a body of a satyr had been found and had been preserved in salt and sent somewhere, I forgot where to Antioch I think it was so that Constantine could see it okay well, uh He's, he he was he was dead serious about this. and Jerome, Jerome isn't the kind of guy who is gonna <laughs> be given to superstitious fairy tales. You pardon me so
0: well, let's let folks uh in on who Jerome was. He was known for being pretty surly and uh he, he uh would go on rants occasionally, but uh, you know more about Jerome than probably I do.
2: Yeah, well, the the short version is he spent a lot of time traveling to different monasteries and things like that. He was an extra, extraordinary scholar and he's the guy who translated the Bible into Latin. It had already been done prior to him, but his translation became the standard Latin translation of scripture. So this guy is a he's a scholar. Uh he is really irascible. Um, And, uh, you know, he spends a lot of time, you know, in the Holy Land, traveling around, talking to people, things like that. He, you know, contemporary of Augustine, um, without question, an absolutely brilliant guy. Well, I guess the thing that would be
0: a challenge for us is obviously with Jerome and with others in in the early church, there's a kind of uh, openness to the prospect that there could be these creatures Whereas I think for most believers today, that is closed. That's not even something we're willing to entertain. It's just something dismissed as a bunch of hooey. Um, So here's the question for you, Glenn. Are you proposing that we reopen our minds to the possibility?
2: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I'm not committed to the idea that they genuinely do exist, but I think it's really important for us to recognize that the world is a lot bigger than we have reduced it to, that the effect of the Enlightenment has been to actually darken our perceptions of the world, that we have reduced it so much that we don't even acknowledge the possibility that such things might exist. I'm not committed that they are. Uh, but again, we have no place for angels. We have very little place for demons. Uh, everything is today has been reduced to, you know, instead of instead of demonic temptation, it's all psychological. Um, right. In uh, God acts in reformed circles. God acts by his decrees. He doesn't send angels to answer prayers. He doesn't Daniel, but we sort of ignore that. Um, we take the language of the trees of the field clapping their hands and the mountains singing for joy, uh, we take that as just this sort of nice word picture that doesn't really mean anything. Well, how do we, how do we exegete that? Right. You know, um, if it's not saying that creation itself rejoices at the coming of Christ, what does it mean? And if creation is a bunch of inanimate objects or at best vegetative objects then how does it rejoice? <laughs> yeah. Well you know, so a- we, we, I think we need to take this more seriously. I think we need to recognize that the world is a lot bigger than the enlightenment has reduced it to. I'm wondering
0: how we So I'm 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 with you. I'm wondering how we, on the one hand, confirm or disprove something like this. Is it entirely a matter of, uh, you know, subjective uh, um, sort of encounters with these things that can't be shared with other people? Um, And then also, how do we open up uh, the minds of some folks to the prospect? that perhaps this is the case. So, you know, particularly those folks who maybe are, uh, I guess, uh, literate in the STEM disciplines, but lacking in their artistic, uh, you know, sort of dimension, the artistic dimensions of life, uh, whether we're talking about literature or music or so forth, which in my mind uh, are more readily harmonized, with what we're talking about here, so I've thrown you a couple of curveballs there. I don't know if you have anything you want to say. Well,
1: here's here's a here's one to add to it, and I think a lot of times what we've done um, post Freud is we've internalized what what we've basically said is all of that was basically psychological stuff we projected and animated the world with, and what really that is is all inside of our subjective. Um, hidden recesses of our consciousness. I mean, this is where you get into Jung and and all of that going back to these primitive kind of um, archetypes and all. And so what they've done is immanentized it, I mean, you know, within the psychological. So psychoanalysis helps us interpret really what is going on there. You know, another attempt to reduce these things to an imminent naturalist um, kind of reading of it. Uh, And so I think one thing that I think one answer is 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 something I think we've been hammering away at is is as we've we've really filled in our understanding of the biblical picture of, of being in reality is to start showing in more deep ways the nature of creatureliness and the kinds of creaturely things there are angelic demonic. And, and what this entails, um, breaking away from the habit of naturalizing and psychologizing these
2: things. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, I, I'm going to act, this is where I'm actually going to turn to Hake and read some of what he has to say, because I think, you know, at the end of the third article in the series, the fourth article is about how you apply this pedagogically. But well, it's sort of in the middle, what I would describe as the conclusion of his argument. This is what he has to say. What can belief in fairies do for us? At a minimum, it might be argued that the first benefit of any kind of belief in fairies is to strengthen our relationship with the world at large. Belief in fairies can slow us down, help us to attend and to be more ready, as Lewis says, to eventually hear about the kingship of Jesus Christ as something relevant to all creation. Finally, in addition to helping us see and respect the world around us, the world of fairy can also show our fellow humans to, to us more fully. Tolkien intentionally connected his mythology with our own current history in order to propose that human children of the ancient elves still walked on our earth. In meeting the other crowd, Eddie Lenahan writes with respect to the Christian tradition while out, with respect, excuse me, for the Christian tradition while just outside it. And he uses the idea of changelings to consider this idea of seeing our fellow humans as inhabiting the fairy world. Christianity is clever here. It says we are to see Christ in our fellow man and that this is how we may see God. But could anyone imagine seeing the fairies in his fellow man? We see the otherworldly in our this-worldly fallen fellow man in order to help him become what he really is or get back to what he once was. Okay, so those are some of the things that he suggests as benefits. There is, however, a warning that he adds, which I think is really important here. However, whatever the benefits might be from any kind of belief in fairies, it is most likely a serious distraction, not to mention pagan worship, to dwell upon them. What I'm advocating is simply a respect for the stories about them and the ways that our ancestors lived, in closer communion with each other and with their places than we typically do in our modern world. In the end, I do not think that we should seek to regain these ways of life and these ways of seeing. However, with patience and quiet respect over generations, we may be able to find new ways of dwelling in our places and of seeing layers of interconnected life within our world. Lewis himself actually argued that we're never going to be able to regain the medieval view. And regaining it should not be our goal. What he suggests is that we should use this as a vehicle to rethink our relationship with the natural world and how we interact with it. And he actually has a rather long essay in here, concludes the part three with a meditation on his experiences with the Susquehanna river, which is actually very interesting and worth reading. But, um, you know, so the point here is, you know, in some ways less about, Belief in fairies. I think it's an intriguing idea. I think it's worth considering. And I think we need to expand our supernatural worldview to at least allow for the possibility of these things without dismissing them out of hand. After all, as Hake points out, we rely on the testimony of a bunch of uneducated peasants for our belief in the resurrection why do we dismiss the testimony of similar kinds of people when they're talking about these other beings we should be i think open to that possibility and if we are open to the possibility even though we're itinerant people who will never who don't have deep enough roots to actually encounter them assuming they exist it does open us up to a different way of looking at the natural world. It opens up to a different way of thinking about our relationship to trees and to rivers and to all the other things in the natural world and giving them a degree of greater respect than many of us do. And I think that that is a worthwhile, whether we we believe that fairies exist or not, whether or as I prefer, the fae or the nature spirits or whatever, whether they we believe that they're there or not, thinking about at least the possibility that they may exist raises a different, it, it creates the possibility of a different kind of relationship that we perceive between ourselves and the natural world. And remember, God created us as stewards of the natural world, not as owners of it. So while we're to develop the resources that God gave us in the natural world, we're not to consider it ours to abuse. We're to do it in such a way that it honors the creator and the owner of these things. And so this provides actually something of a foundation for a Christian view of ecology as well as a sense of understanding of our own relationship to the world and a respect for it, and for the God over whom, you know, assuming these things exist for the moment, He's their God too. And as fellow creatures, we can relate to the world in a new and different way, respecting what it is that our unseen neighbors are. Um, are connected to one of the things that i think
0: goes with that that is worth considering as well is that and i i had a conversation with james uh wood the other day about one of the talks he's going to give at the conference we're having at our church in september and and he uh he's uh dealing with the fact that in our apologetics we think it's all about ideas that there's nothing more uh, to uh, our debates with uh, people about the content of the faith and the existence of God. And his his point to me was, no, there are demons out there. <laughs> <laughs> and there are uh, things that we see in our society today that are just so insane that uh, perhaps the most reasonable explanation is demonic influence. In other words, these things are just so blatantly stupid so self-destructive in character you know i'm just you know we've talked about this many many times but all the things that people are doing to their bodies cutting things off uh pumping their bodies full of uh you know hormones or other drugs to kind of alter their appearance you know all this stuff yeah you know, and, and, and
2: just just a moment Chris think sure. about the number of people who decide that they're transgender and then try to detransition later realize just what's been done to them. Yeah. Can you think of anything more demonic than convincing a person to do that? Yeah. And then letting them restore to their rightful mind. Yeah, that would be even t- more torment, right?
0: Yeah, so, so his, his point is is that we need to be, you know, sort of aware of the influence of the demonic on human beings. And I think that what you've been talking about for, you know, the last hour, Glenn, is something that corresponds to that. We, we ought to be open to the uh, reality of spiritual beings, you know, uh, you know, at work in the natural world.
1: Well, and I think that one of the things you see is, I mean, one thing the enlightenment did preserve, but in too strong a way, was the significance of reason, right? It provided a buffer against our, you know, as Charles Taylor would say, our porous selves, so that we're not affected by every every single thing, thinking, you know, the spirits are, at, you know, we, we're living basically in terror of the spirits. Um, so reason is a God-given gift to help us discern, in many cases— um, you know what is true, what isn't, what is spiritual, what isn't, what is sound biblically, what is it? So the place of reason is very significant, and ideas. This is why we're to bring all thoughts into submission to Christ and to you know proclaim the truth. But when you see that this perverted form of in narrowing of reason that the Enlightenment gave us, and it was grounded in subjectivity, so it became open again to to the irrational and I would argue the demonic. Now you have no buffer there, and you are dealing with people that are com- completely don't have anything in their poorest selves again. And so we are back in a situation almost that the postmodern is, is basically brought us back to a set of conditions where the demonic is able to flood this vacuum. Um, and, and that's why our re- rational apologetics and, and our attempts to appeal to even imagination are just falling on dead ears.
0: Yeah, that's a great observation and of course we have Christ's words about the person who had been delivered from a demon who is left uh without something to occupy the space the demonic has left and returns with sevenfold. Yeah. yeah, sevenfold. Anyway, with that thought, we should probably wrap things up. I know you have to get going here, Glenn. Anything you want to say is is uh, we do though.
2: Uh, yeah, just don't take anything that I've said here as a confession of faith in, <laughs> in this idea that the Fae exists. It's just a, an intriguing set of ideas that we shouldn't dismiss out of hand.
0: Very good. I take that to heart. And you should take it to heart to folks out there in podcast land. Anyway, as we wrap up, thanks for listening to another show. And just want to say uh, one thing before we conclude. We've got a conference at my church that's going to be uh, held in September, the uh, 9th and 10th. And it's going to be great. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes to, to uh, the Uh, website that can fill you in and out everything that's going to be going on at that conference but it's entitled Welcome to Negative World and the speakers will be Joe Rigney, Aaron Wren and James Wood and check it out. Alright thanks a lot. Bye 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 bye